Thanks for tuning in to the Seattle Limudcast. I'm Tamar Libicki. In today's episode, I interview Limud 2020 presenter Natan Meir. In doing research on the marginalized people of Eastern European Jewry in the modern period, Natan discovered that orphan boys were sometimes used as substitutes for boys from wealthier families in the conscription to the Russian army. The idea of the marginal person as a scapegoat or as a sacrifice for the community is something that comes up elsewhere in the book as well in a number of other contexts, including, by the way, in the case of the cholera wedding. So I was wondering if we could start off by you telling us the title of your upcoming book. Sure. It's called Stepchildren of the Shtetl, the Destitute, Disabled, and Mad of Jewish Eastern Europe, 1800 to 1939. Thank you. And just to clarify, you are in a specific field in Jewish studies. Do you specifically study a time period or a region? What's your expertise in? I focus on the Jews of Eastern Europe in the modern period, so that would be roughly 1800 or maybe a little bit before that. Some people would say a little bit after 1800, all the way up to the early 20th century. And so for me, Eastern Europe includes the former Russian Empire. And so we're talking about parts of what are today Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia, Poland, and Russia. And can you tell me why the modern period is designated in that way? Are there major historical events that started off and end it? Why is that group of years clustered together? Well, within the field of Jewish history, modernity is seen as a major turning point, and really as it is throughout all of Western history. But it's defined in different ways in different fields. And in Jewish history, for especially for the Jews of Europe, modernity is so important because it signals the end of a long period in which Jews lived in a fairly insular way, usually, and with very specific communal structures that allowed them to live according to Jewish law and custom within the Jewish community. And what modernity usually means within Jewish history is that those long-standing structures start to break down, in part because of forces from the inside of the Jewish community, because Jews begin to be interested in joining the larger society, and in part because of forces from the outside, like the modern state, which begins to view the established Jewish community, the autonomous Jewish community, which governs itself as something which is not suitable for the new era. And so those structures and ways of life which had existed, it's really those define the Middle Ages for Jewish history. Those begin to break down, and modernity embraces a huge number of transformations within 
Jewish society and Jewish existence, some of which occur very, very rapidly. Very interesting. Can I ask what made you choose to study that time period? What made you choose to study Eastern European Jewry? Well, it's a number of factors that uh, all came together for me in my early 20s. One was that I fell in love with history as an undergraduate and actually was studying U.S. history, but in my senior year at Columbia, I started taking some Jewish history courses, and they really set me on fire intellectually, just in terms of helping me understand so much about the Jewish world that maybe had never quite made sense to me or things that I had wondered about, and all of a sudden all the pieces connected. And the other piece is that I studied Russian as an undergraduate, and then I went to Russia during my junior year, and I I was in St. Petersburg for about four months and was really taken by the Russian language and by Slavic culture more generally. And then I suppose there's a last piece, which is, for me, a longstanding fascination with and connection with Israel. And I was wondering about the origins of modern Israeli culture. Uh, Very often when I spent long periods there, I'd ponder about this really fascinating culture that is modern Israeli culture and decided that I wanted to trace it back to its roots, or at least... um, some of its roots, and those go back to Eastern Europe. And the same is really true for American Jewish culture in many ways. So for me, Eastern Europe was where it all started, and also because I already had a language that would enable me to study that culture in depth, meaning Russian. I already was fluent in Hebrew, and the only other language that I needed was Yiddish. I mean, Polish is also necessary, but that's a that's a more complicated issue that we <laughs> we could talk about later on, but generally I felt like this is the, the place that I wanted to get into and start learning more about. So I know you are about to put out your book in June or July of this year, and I also know from reading the introduction to the book that it's been a very long process. You know, you talked about why you wanted to study this region, this time period. What made you want to study marginalized people within the Jewish community of that time? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and it's one that people have asked me before. And I think I end up giving a slightly different answer every time I'm asked it, but for whatever reason. I guess it's because it, it's such a complicated thing for me, and as you said, I was involved with the book and its creation for a very long time, for well over a decade. Part of it is my intellectual journey as a historian. My first book was on the Jews of Kiev in the Tsarist period, and that book was pretty heavily about the major Jewish leaders of the community in Kiev and the institutions that they built. And so it was about very prominent personalities, and a lot of it was about the elite of the community, or also the middle class, but there wasn't a whole lot about the ordinary people. They did factor into it here and there because there was a lot of institutional charity that went on in the Jewish community of Kiev, and sometimes these recipients of the charity were talked about, but usually in the aggregate, not as individual people. So I started becoming interested in who... The ordinary folk were people who were being assisted by the community, the down and out, the destitute, the needy, and and so on and so forth. And I gradually, as I left behind the project about Kiev, I began to do research 
about who the down and out of Jewish Eastern Europe might be, about kind of which categories that might encompass. At first I thought I would be doing a lot of work on servants, and that eventually kind of went by the wayside, and I looked at a bunch of other groups and possible categories as well, until I finally narrowed it down to the groups that I talk about in the book. And I think also there's probably a personal component for me as well, without going into a whole lot of detail, just understanding, in some sense, what it's like to be marginalized within the Jewish community. I think maybe it comes out of my experience as a gay man within the Jewish community. I've also had connections with people who suffer from mental illness, and that's also in the book. So there's definitely a personal dimension as well. So you were talking about how the start of your career you were studying the elites, and then you started wondering about the common people. And one thing that I read in your introduction that I thought was very interesting is you said that within a shtetl context, people who were marginalized or seen as the other may have been quite visible at the time, where, you know, if someone had a deformity or was acting in a way that didn't conform to the norms, they would be very visible at the time. But you said that they were, in fact, quite invisible in the historical record, where you had a very hard time finding accounts of them. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your process of trying to find the historical record and really having to search for that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. You really phrased it exactly right in terms of both the visibility and the invisibility of these people. I did have to go through quite a lot of sources to find anything about the marginal folk, about disabled people and beggars and poor orphans. It's not that they're not there at all. It's more that they're either, you have to read between the lines, or they're scattered across a pretty wide array of different types of sources. There aren't a whole lot of discrete works that you could look at that were published in Eastern Europe in, let's say, the late 19th or early 20th century that would be specifically about disabled people, let's say. You know, there's a few here and there, but there aren't very many. And so generally what I try to do is just look at as many different kinds of sources as I could in order to find somewhere a mention of, of a poor orphan or, uh, or a mentally ill person. And that includes the press in different languages, in Russian and Yiddish and in Hebrew, includes memoir literature and communal documents, Jewish communal documents, archival documents that would be within the governmental sphere that different bureaucrats might send each other or petitions that people submitted that would be housed in the archives. And one of the complicating factors is that, and this is one of the themes of the book, is that these marginal people also became a kind of symbol that were used within various discourses within East European Jewish society And the reason that makes it more complicated is because there's a lot of short stories and plays, for example, that feature beggars or that feature orphans. And that confused me at first because I thought to myself, well, I I thought these people were not particularly, that not much attention was paid to them. 
because that's what I was discovering from some other sources. And then I see all these literary sources that seem to show these people as protagonists of some kind. And it took me a while to figure out kind of what was going on. And the way I explain that is that these people in the historical reality, whether we're looking at a shtetl, a meaning a, a, a mid-sized market town in Eastern Europe, or one of the big cities, they're generally not that well treated. I don't mean to say that they're not cared for, often by some individual people or by institutions. Often that is the case, but they're maybe not as well cared for as we might wish to believe, looking back on it. So their situation was often pretty dire. And at the same time, they are talked about quite a lot, whether we look at these works of literature or sometimes at the press or at works by Zionists or other nationalists, because they become a symbol of the entire Jewish people and of the plight of the Jewish people in the late 19th and early 20th century. The Jewish people as an outcast, as destitute, as forlorn, as disabled. And that's why they become a very potent symbol of what the Jews in Eastern Europe are going through during that time. But that doesn't mean that the actual people we're talking about, the actual disabled and destitute people, are necessarily treated any better than we might wish for them to be treated. Yeah, another question I had about that is, it's interesting, you're writing a book about the marginalized people, but that seems like it can actually include lots and lots of different types of people. And then you're trying to figure out trends that apply to these different types of people. So I was wondering, how did you decide what to focus in on? How did you decide what would classify someone within that marginalized status? Yes, so this was a question of mine from the very beginning, and I began consulting with various colleagues in my field to ask them, well, who would you include as the marginalized if you were going to, uh, if you're going to go about this kind of project? And a lot of people talked about criminals and the Jewish underworld, which was a, a pretty important part of the Eastern European Jewish experience, especially in the cities in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, all the way up to World War II. And then there was another colleague who said, well, you probably shouldn't even use the word marginalized or marginal figures because that reifies their marginalization even more. And it, in the historical record, it will make them even more marginalized than they already were. So there, there were different kinds of things that I heard from colleagues about who the marginalized could be. And of course, I already had my own ideas as well. I already mentioned the idea of servants. I was also thinking about a certain category of Jews in Eastern Europe called Yishuvnikis, who were the village Jews, who tended to be looked upon as ignoramuses and boors because they lived very far from established Jewish communities. But ultimately, what I decided was that I was going to look at the evidence itself, and this would generally be my modus operandi as a historian, try to allow the sources to determine the definitions and the parameters of what it is that I'm discussing. And there were two major, let's say, institutions or two major phenomena in Eastern Europe that did that for me. And one of them was the Hektish, which is the poorhouse, the Jewish poorhouse of Eastern Europe, which was a combination of sick house for needy people and a kind of hostel for 
beggars, both local beggars and transient beggars, uh, on their way through towns. And the hektesh could be found in almost every shtetl in Eastern Europe. And I looked to see who lived in the hektesh. And the other phenomenon is the cholera wedding, which was a peculiar religious ritual that emerged in Eastern Europe around the middle of the 19th century, or maybe slightly before, which was a ritual to stop a cholera epidemic in which the marginal people of a particular town, whether it was a a beggar or a disabled person or someone else, would be married to each other in the cemetery. And that was understood would magically stop the cholera epidemic. And there's many instances, many recorded instances of cholera weddings through the 19th century into the 20th centuries. And so, again, I looked at the cholera wedding and tried to understand who did an individual town include in the cholera wedding. And those were the people that I defined as being marginal. And that definition then that I took from both the hektesh and the cholera wedding ended up checking out in many other ways as I read more and more of the theoretical literature about marginalization and about disability when I consulted works in sociology, for example, or anthropology. All of it started to make sense as a whole, that we're talking about people who are really on the margins, on the, the border of the community. And within Eastern European Jewish culture, they were really seen as being only half alive, which means that they were half dead. Hmm. There's a lot of association symbolically with the realm of death and the realm of spirits when you start to look at these marginal people. So when you talk about disabled people and beggars and poor orphans, very often they're associated with that symbolic world of the dead, as anthropologists would say, liminality, which is a state of being neither here nor there, kind of somewhere in between. You introduced a lot of interesting subjects, but maybe I'll go one by one. I was very interested, you said these people were often conceptualized using symbols of death, that they were thought of as half-dead. Do you have any examples at hand, like phrases that would be used around them or ways that they would be treated? Like, how did that symbolism work itself out in the real world? Well, one of the best examples is the fact that the poorhouse, the hektish, was, in at least in some cases, we have evidence that it was also used as a purification room for the burial of the dead. In other words, the room where corpses were prepared for burial in some places, certainly not everywhere, but in some places, the poorhouse doubled as that kind of facility. And in addition to that, which is obviously very, very striking, because you have this vision of, of the Hever Kadisha, of the burial society, preparing a corpse in the very same place where beggars are staying overnight or for a few nights, and living and sleeping and eating, In addition to that, we also know that in many shtetls, the hektesh was located next to the cemetery. And in literary sources, very often there is a connection made between the hektesh and the world of the dead, the cemetery itself. And of course, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the cholera wedding took place in the cemetery. 
And that, of course, has to do also with the fact that since it was a ritual to end an epidemic, there was an association between the ritual and the world of death, the world of, of the epidemic itself. And so it was, in a way, natural that you would hold it in the cemetery. But that fact that it was in the cemetery also helps us understand the connection between these marginal people and the world of the dead. So the cholera wedding, in the introduction to your book, you said that it was an interesting mix of modern and traditional, that it took on this sort of traditional guise, but it was actually a new invention. And so I was wondering if you could just give a few more details about how it was done, how people were chosen, how people were coerced to participate, and what people thought it would achieve, but also why it it seemed to continue on as a ritual for actually a very long time. So if you could just give a few more details about it. Yeah, absolutely. The cholera wedding is so fascinating. I could spend quite a few more years researching it and trying to understand it. I took a stab at it in this book, and there's a whole chapter dedicated to it and to both describing the phenomenon and also trying to analyze it and understand it. So from a more descriptive point of view or phenomenological understanding, it seems to emerge sometime in the 1830s, possibly earlier, but that seems to be the first recorded evidence that we have during a cholera epidemic in, in 1831. And then there's additional waves of cholera that come about in the 1860s and then the 1890s. And so every time there's another cholera wave, we have more descriptions of cholera weddings happening throughout the Palos Settlement, throughout Eastern Europe. And then the, in the period of World War I and just after World War I, when, there's, when there are all kinds of different epidemics, influenza, for example, again, we see it coming up. And one thing that I explain in the book is that it was often referred to as an old ritual or an ancient ritual or something which our forefathers did. But like I said, there's really no evidence at all, and I've scoured, scoured all kinds of different sources. There's no evidence that it happened any time before the 19th century. So my question was, well, why is it that people said that it was an old ritual? I think part of it is that it really was an incredibly innovative ritual. And I think that although it may seem challenging for us to understand as 21st century people, uh, especially because it involved what we would consider to be, and I as a historian would argue, was the degradation of these marginal people by forcing them to marry each other in the cemetery. But if you look at it from an anthropological point of view, it is very, very creative. It's a very innovative kind of ritual that brings together all kinds of different strands of belief and custom and practice within Judaism and kind of melds them together into this one very, very powerful ritual that the descriptions tell us that the entire Jewish population of the town would attend, and sometimes we hear that they were Christians attending as well. And so, of course, people who innovate very often in traditional societies have to explain that what they're doing is not actually an innovation at all. It's actually an old custom. And that is part of the explanation for why it is that 
they're saying that this is a kind of ancient ritual that they're reviving or that they're continuing when in fact we know that's that's not actually the case. So I was wondering, since we talked about the Hekdesh and the cholera wedding, there are a few more things that you brought up that illustrated how uh, marginalized people were treated during that time. So I was wondering if I could ask about a few of those. Could you talk about the Kapore, and I might be pronouncing that wrong, for the Russian army, the way that people would send those members of their community that they viewed as, I don't know how to say it, like less valuable or outsiders as part of the conscription process. Yes, that's an important episode that I try to cover in the book. This is a pretty well-known phenomenon within East European Jewish history, which is the very severe conscription regime that Nicholas I introduced in 1827, which forced Jewish communities to find conscripts from within their own ranks. The Jewish community leadership itself had to produce the recruits and then hand them over to the Russian army for a 25-year period of service. And usually the recruits were taken from the young male population, meaning boys as young as 10, 11, 12, in some cases even younger than that. So this is a phenomenon, this is a horrible, a very tragic episode that's been explained by some of my colleagues. But I went at at a slightly different angle because I wanted to understand if this connected to my larger narrative about the marginal people in Eastern Europe. And it turns out that within this larger tragedy of Jewish communities handing over young boys to the Russian army, There's an additional tragedy, which is that very often orphan boys were, as far as I can tell, compelled by the kahal, by the official Jewish community, to serve as substitutes for boys from wealthier families. And what they would do is they would sign an attestation which said, I, so-and-so, do declare that I voluntarily submit myself as a recruit, as a substitute for this other boy from another family. And part of what was happening is that these orphan boys came from families that had originally owed back taxes to the Jewish community, and in some cases the only way that those taxes could be paid off was if wealthier families paid these orphan boys to go into the army And in that way, the family's entire debt would be erased. And there was clearly a lot of corruption involved here as well. And I talk about a few of the cases that I found in the archives, which are very difficult to read because you know that this 11 or 12-year-old is going off and won't see, well, probably won't see his family ever again. The soonest would likely be within a few decades. And many of the boys also were, were subjected to very severe conditions and sometimes more compelled to convert to Christianity. So it's a really difficult phenomenon to try to understand. And like I said, it does relate to this larger question of the marginal folk because in some ways they were seen as worthless. And in some of the discussions that you can find within various types of sources in the Jewish community, including folk songs, which is one of the sources that I try to analyze in this particular case, the recruits are referred to as kapores, meaning 
they are kind of a sacrifice that is made on behalf of the Jewish community because they are the ones who are seen as worth, you know, and I hate to say worthless, but in many cases they were seen as worthless or, or worth the least, mm. and therefore were the ones who could be sacrificed for the good of the whole. And that was a move made by the Jewish community leadership that was bitterly resented by, uh, as far as we can tell, very bitterly resented by ordinary people for many, many decades. And the idea of the marginal person as a scapegoat or as a sacrifice for the community is something that comes up elsewhere in the book as well in a number of other contexts, including, by the way, in the case of the cholera wedding. I was trying to see if there was a way to end it on a high note, but I don't think there's any way of doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I could try if you want. Okay. Since I finished the project, I've become aware of all of these organizations, uh, or at least a handful in the Jewish community that are now working specifically on issues of marginalization, usually um, relating to disability, to, to physical disability or to cognitive disability of some kind. And what's exciting for me is that we've reached the stage in the development of the Jewish community and the stage of Jewish history where people who were once marginalized in sometimes very cruel ways in the Jewish community are now being integrated in really beautiful and exciting ways. And I'm hopeful that at some point in the next few years, as I'm talking more and more about my book and trying to introduce the public to these themes, that I'll be able to talk to some of the audiences of people who are involved with these efforts that I was describing and be able to connect the Jewish history piece of it to what's going on right now. Unfortunately, it's usually a a very painful series of of portraits that I paint about the past, but it also gives a sense of real progress, and I think that in and of itself is exciting. Well, thank you so much. Absolutely. Look forward to hearing the podcast. The Seattle Mooncast was recorded at Full Track Productions in Seattle, Washington. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamar Lubicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. Thanks again to our guest, Natan Meir. Natan is the Lori I. Loke Professor in the Harold Schnitzer Family Program in Judaic Studies at Portland State University. Look for his book, Stepchildren of the Shtetl, The Destitute, Disabled, and Mad of Jewish Eastern Europe, 1800 to 1939, coming out in July 2020 with Stanford University Press.